turn with me to the book of James for the uh, foreseeable future. If God wills and if the Lord tarries during the times while we take brief breaks from the Gospel of Luke, whenever I'm up here anyway, uh, we will be going through the book of James together. And as I was studying it, it really is a good complement to what we have been studying in Luke because uh, James alludes to the teaching of Jesus very often. In fact, he does it with more frequency than any other New Testament epistle. In fact, more than one commentator that I looked at said something along the lines of, of James could be seen almost like a commentary on much of Jesus' most prominent teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Even though James didn't have access to the Gospels when he wrote his letter because they weren't written yet, the Gospels weren't, it is clear that he had access to the same oral traditions, the same testimony, the same truths that the Gospel writers took advantage of when they wrote their Gospels. And even actually more to our point, uh, several scholars have pointed out that James actually bears more in common with Luke than any of the other synoptic Gospels. It is definitely, though, easy to draw a straight line to much of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount from James's teaching, James' allusions to Christ's teaching. The letter actually shares more unique words with Luke than it does with Matthew and Mark combined. So there are a, a few ways that that could be seen, but, but probably the most prevalent, something that would be fresh on our minds, has come up recently in Luke 18 and 19, as we've seen the similar concern uh, that James has that we see in Luke about the dangers of the corrupting power and influence of worldly riches. So my hope is, as we look at this epistle together, that it will be a help and an encouragement for us to continue to remember and to put into practice that which God has been shaping our church with, instructing our church in and through the Gospel of Luke. That said, the book of James is one of the most contentious books among scholars for reasons that we'll get into a little bit uh, today. Uh, but even though there has been some pretty passionate debate uh, about this book through the years by scholars, uh, and even amongst the Reformers, it is one of the most beloved and well-known books by the average Christian in the pew today. Indeed, few books are quoted as often or have a higher frequency of well-known and memorized passages than the book of James. Without any real official way to measure this, the commentators I read who spoke to this believe that it's, it's probably one of the two or three most popular books for study among Christians today. And the reasons for that are they probably all fall into these following three reasons that I'm going to give you here. First, uh, the reason why it's popular is it is extremely practical. It's an extremely practical book. It is filled with clear and direct commands on how a redeemed uh, Christian community lives in wisdom in this world. While it is false to say, as some do, that James has absolutely no interest in theology, it is true that James does concentrate more on the practical outworking of the Christian theology that is presumed throughout the letter. So, that's one reason, extremely practical. Secondly, it is concise. Uh, James doesn't spend a lot of time developing each of his arguments. He makes his point, and then he moves on quickly. And that makes it easier for most of us to memorize and understand sections of James. The fact that he doesn't really go into elaborate detail is actually one of the many frustrations of interpreters, and that has actually led to some of these controversies. But at the same time, it's one of those things that, that is so refreshing to the average Christian who comes to the book in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a difficulty, as they're recognizing sin in their own life, and they can read it and see it clearly and, and think through that passage. Actually, as a quick excursus here, because I don't know where else to put this, one of the controversies around James uh, the, the, that's most prominent is that it appears to be one of the latest books to gain wide recognition as part of the canon. And the main reason for that is kind of what we're just talking about in those previous two points. It's not actually the content of the letter. 
It's not the content of the letter that it was kind of late to be accepted by everyone. It was actually the fact that it was more practical and didn't deal as strongly with really heavy doctrine that was the cause of so much discussion and debate in the first few centuries of the church. So the, the early church fathers, if you remember anything from church history, are really trying to go against heresies. They're trying to hammer home precise doctrines of the Trinity and, and Christology and soteriology. And a letter like James that just kind of assumes those doctrines more than it does develop them, and then tells Christians how they're to live in light of those doctrines is not so helpful in some of those debates that were going on. So James's late acceptance was much more from neglect than any type of theological disagreement that people were having at the time. So James is beloved for its devotional reasons by Christians because of its practicality and because it's concise. And then thirdly, James has a lavish use of metaphors and illustrations, which makes his teaching both easier for us to understand and to remember. That's what illustrations do. So because of those three things, James has also been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it shares those things in common with Proverbs. And uh, the book does actually, in fact, bear, in addition to that, bear many similarities with Jewish wisdom literature. And it is true that as you read the letter thoughtfully, you can't help but notice how James just fills the letter with these extremely helpful illustrations as he quickly moves from point to point. He doesn't spend the same time on any particular issue as Paul usually does, as, he, as Paul usually develops one point to lead into the next and spends much more time on each one. But that being said, that being true, that doesn't mean that James has just chaotically thrown a bunch of spiritual pointers together, as, as actually some have suggested. There is a definite purpose behind this letter. James does have a goal in mind for his readers. And it's the same thing that we need to think about when we approach this book. This letter challenges the readers through, through many different topics to consider whether or not our lives really reflect what we say we believe. And this is a concept that is captured well in James's term, a double-minded man. It's a term that many commentators believe was actually coined by James. It's a term that appears only in the book of James, and it's in two places, in, in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 4, verse 8. And it literally means something along the lines of being one with two minds, or one with two souls. So the concept is, is kind of like being a hypocrite, but it means a little bit more than that. Because while a hypocrite may intentionally be trying to hide who they truly are, uh, to present themselves as something that they want others to see them as, the double-minded man is literally being pulled in different directions. It's not so much that they want people to think that they are something that they are not. That might be there, but it's not so much that. It's that there are two competing desires in them. And they keep going back and forth between the two, and they're, they're really unable to go confidently or forcefully in one direction. And the reason why this is such an absolutely pivotal book for us, it's so important for the church in our current cultural context, is because it challenges a people who proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord, but still seem to be reaching out their hand to take some of the world with them. Challenges them who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, but continue living and thinking in a way that doesn't actually reflect the deep-seated change in their heart that they claim has taken place. James is a book that confronts our excuses and our apathy when we say some of these very common things that, that are said all the time around church people. Say stuff like, I know it's wrong, I don't know why I still do it. I know this is an area I've been working on for a while. I just keep stumbling. It's a, it's a besetting sin, really. This is just one of those things, you know, that I really struggle with. I don't know why I keep going back to that website, back to that hobby, back to that place, back to that attitude. I don't know why I keep stumbling into that. I don't know why I keep wasting my time with that. You're right. I, I don't know why I keep doing that. 
And, yeah, and I know I should prioritize church more, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know it, and I'll, I'll, I'm getting around to doing that. I know I shouldn't worry so much, but you know, that's, that's who I am. I'm a worrier. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always going to struggle with that particular one. And sometimes, you know, I'm start, sometimes that just comes out. And when, I, when I'm in that situation, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just not a morning person. Or, you know, that's how, that's how I get when I'm hungry. That, that's what happens. Or I'm, I'm naturally a controller. That's who I naturally am. So, this is, so it's hard for me to do what you're saying. Or maybe saying something, I get that from my mom and dad. You know, or, or I'm not perfect, I never will be. Just some version of, I don't want to do those things, or say those things, or act that way. I don't want to. It's just part of who I am. Some, some, something that happens to me. And in spite of whether or not there's any validity to any of those comments or excuses or not, it doesn't matter. What James does is he, he reaches through 2,000 years of history, and he sticks his first century Jewish finger right in our chest. And with all the authority of one who knows that he is speaking on behalf of Almighty God, he says, you do it because you want to. You do it because you want to, you double-minded man. With the prophetic voice of Elijah to the people during the reign of Ahab, James looks at our refusal to let go of or truly repent of certain things and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. James challenges us not by arguing for a certain theology that we may not fully embrace or believe, but by pointing to our lives and saying, do you really actually even believe the theology that you already claim you hold to? So, if we are attentive to the Word of God in the book of James, it will accompany us as we look at the life and teaching of Jesus Christ as it is unfolded to us in the Gospel of Luke and anywhere we're reading Scripture. And as we go home amazed at the works and the words of Christ, and we you know, write down our notes about what really sticks out to us, and we excitedly share the things that we're learning with our, with our families and with our home groups, the book of James comes alongside us that examines our lives and asks us, do you really actually believe any of that? This is all actually truth that you love and embrace why are you responding to trials like that? Why, why are you treating your brother or sister like that? Why are those words coming out of your mouth? To borrow James's illustration from the end of chapter 1, it'll be like a mirror that shows you what you actually believe through the actions in your life rather than what you just say you believe. I don't think I could say it any better than Curtis Vaughn who said, Few things would do more to revitalize present-day Christianity than a determined effort on the part of believers to take James seriously and to put his teaching into practice. So, with that then as an overall kind of introduction, let's begin our study today with that determined effort to familiarize ourselves with some of the key contextual information that is important for us to know as we begin this study. And we're going to do that by just thinking through just the first verse of the book of James together. So just the first verse. If you, if you came and thought we were getting into trials today, <laughs> sorry. Just count that up as another trial. <laughs> Come back next week and learn how to deal with it. But just two main points today for, for our outline. They're pretty easy ones. Um, num point number one, the author. Point number two, the recipients. The author and the recipients. So let's look together at James 1.1, but in order to get a little more of a flavor for him as a teacher, let's go ahead and read all the way through what most people believe is the opening of the letter, uh, James 1, 1 through 18. Let's look at that together now. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So with that in mind, you can hear the voice of James. Now going back to that very first verse, we see a, a standard greeting there in verse 1-1. Standard greeting for a letter, kind of similar to other letters in the New Testament. And around that time, by beginning, uh, beginning by introducing the author first, and then the recipients, and then some sort of greeting. So as we get to our two points... Point number one, the author. Point number one, the author. We, we're going to unpack that together, figure out who this James is and why it's important, but we're going to do that through three subpoints. So this is, this is going to be the much longer point. Subpoint A is his identity. Subpoint B is his biography. Subpoint C, his legacy. So his identity, his, his biography, his legacy. So subpoint A, his identity. So we can see right away with the very first word of the book that the author of the book of James is a man named James. That's why you come, come here to hear me preach. <laughs> it seems simple enough, but it's, it's not as simple as it looks at first. Uh, at first, James was actually a pretty popular name. It's literally Jacobos, uh, and, and that comes from the, the Hebrew name Jacob. So James is actually named Jacob. So you can imagine that there were many Hebrew children named Jacob. Jacob, you know, is kind of important to Israel. But even though James was an extremely popular name, and the author doesn't tell us any more about himself other than his name, and even though there are at least, at least four men in the New Testament named James, Figuring out what James wrote the book actually isn't that difficult. The very fact that someone would write a letter presuming the kind of authority that we see in this letter and only identify himself as James with no other qualifiers indicates that it could really actually only be two men. Two possible men. One much more prominent, but two possible men. The first, James the son of Zebedee, the apostle that was part of the inner circle of, of Jesus' twelve, along with Peter and John. Peter, James, and John, the inner three. He's one of the sons of thunder. Is either him or James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the early leader of the Jerusalem church. And there are several reasons why Christians throughout history, with little exception, have always understood this to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. First, while James is almost certainly the earliest book written in the New Testament, written sometime between 45 and 48 AD, James the son of Zebedee was the earliest disciple martyred 
in 44 AD at the hands of Herod Agrippa. Even though James is written early, James, the son of Zebedee, was killed even earlier. Second, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And as we're going to talk about in a bit, he was one of the most important leaders in the early church. And this letter is the most Jewish of any other letter in the New Testament. And so it just makes logical sense that it would have come from James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he is the only James that would have no trouble speaking this authoritatively to all Jewish Christians. Most scholars note that only he had the type of authority that this letter claims. In fact, it might actually surprise you to know that this is actually the most authoritative letter in the New Testament. What I mean by that, uh, not that they're ranked in. This one's more authoritative, so I follow it the most. It's not like that. I just mean there is a higher frequency of imperative verbs in James than in any other New Testament book. That means there's more commands per chapter than we see anywhere else. That's what I mean by most authoritative. James was one of the most prominent figures in the early church. If you were a Jewish Christian around this time, and you were in casual conversation, and you mentioned something that James said or did, unless you qualified it by saying you were talking about a different James, those around you would assume you were talking about this James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's the only guy who can be one name James. It would be like if I was talking to you and I said, Something like, hey, did you hear about what Biden did this week? Or what Biden said this week? And then you were like, wow, I can't believe President Biden said that. And then I said, President Biden? I'm, I'm talking about Jerry Biden down at King Supers. Why would you just go to President Biden like that? Well, you assume that because right now, he is the most prominent Biden who can be referred to as with, with just one name. If I take it a different way, or if I, if I say Biden and mean someone else, that's on me. That's bad communication. It's the same, same way with how James was then. And so more, and more evidence that this was the James who wrote this letter is found right here in this introduction. No other New Testament epistle matches this same style of, of introduction. So, so nothing that Paul writes or Peter or John, the introduction doesn't look like this. An introduction of the author of the letter, so they're, they're similar, but, but exactly like this. An introduction of the author of the letter, followed by the identification of the recipients, followed then by the simple word, greetings, the, the Greek word, kyrene. We don't see this in any of the other letters in the New Testament, but we do see it in the book of Acts. It is the form of letter that we, we see once in, in Acts 23 when Claudius is writing to Felix, but it is also the form of the letter that we see at the Jerusalem Council. So turn back to Acts 15. I want to show you a few things from this section of Scripture. In Acts 15, what we see here is that Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and as they are seeing God save Gentiles, some men come down from Judea, and they start teaching that these new Gentile converts must be circumcised, or they will not be saved. Paul and Barnabas engage them in debate for a time, and then they go to the apostles and elders at the church in Jerusalem to seek out an answer to this matter. So if you, uh, if you look in Acts 15, you see in verse 6 that the apostles and elders are gathered together and we're told that there is much debate. And then Peter stands up and he gives his account of the conversion of the Gentiles and he weighs in and he says that this isn't necessary. Circumcision is not necessary. If the Gentiles are going to be saved, they're going to be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as we are. And then Paul and Barnabas speak up. And they give their account of the signs and wonders that they have seen among the Gentiles. And then now look at verse 13. Verse 13 through 21, we read this. And after they finish, so after Peter finishes, Paul and Barnabas, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will build its ruins and, I, and will restore it. 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, and this is still James talking, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in this passage, notice what we see here. Right here you see that what we were just talking about, the authority of James. That's the first thing you see. You see the authority of James. In a meeting with Paul, Barnabas, and Peter, James has the final word. So you can see right there that if anyone around this time is going to write an authoritative letter and identify himself as James, it's got to be this James. But also, look a little further down at verses 22 and 23 where we see the letter that they send. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Now listen to the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Greetings. So you, you see that structure there. That's the same exact structure that we see in James. This is a letter that is being overseen and sent out by James, and it is the only other letter from Christian leadership to fellow Christians in the New Testament with the same structure. So there's that evidence also, and there are other similarities in this short letter when it comes to words and phrases with the book of James that also help point further to this conclusion that these are authored by the same man. And I might point them out as we get further along in this study, but if you're dying to know, we can, we can talk later. I cut them all out. So when you take that, when you add all of these things together, and then you throw in the added weight that James, the half-brother of Jesus, has always been the assumed writer, even from our earliest available Christian writings and traditions, it is clear who the author is. So the fact that his authorship is widely recognized, similarities between Acts 15 and the epistle of James, a consistency with what we know of the person of James, and just the fact that biblically, he really is the only one who could write an authoritative letter like this simply from James with no other distinctive qualifications. All this together, and we can say pretty confidently that this is the James who wrote this letter. Actually, in, in church history, the challenges to the authorship of this letter don't come from people trying to say it was a different James. They actually come from many who claim that someone who wasn't James wrote the letter pseudonymously later on, centuries later. Someone at a later date wrote their own letter and claimed that it was from James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, in order to give their letter more weight. But really the only people who do this are liberal scholars who just want to poke holes in the Bible. That's really all there is. They have problems with everything in the Bible. They're always trying to make a way to make it sound, seem more made up and, and take away reasons for trusting it. The main argument that is usually given by them is a dumb argument. is <laughs> that the Greek in this letter is too good to have been written by a Palestinian carpenter's son. There are many reasons, again, why that's a bad argument. It's just, first of all, it's just a logical fallacy of applying something general to everyone and pretending that there can't be exceptions. There are always exceptional examples of people working harder and succeeding in unusual ways in spite of their upbringing. Oh, he can't, he can't rise above it and, and succeed. No, God uses whoever he wants to. Also, many historians have concluded that the areas surrounding Judea, Samaria, and Galilee were mostly bilingual, even trilingual, with Hebrew being used in worship and religious ceremonies, Aramaic for common vernacular, and Greek becoming the most important linguistic medium for business and trade. So, so the people who lived in Galilee, the Jewish people there weren't idiots. They knew three languages, most of them. In addition to this, someone of James's stature almost certainly read and proofread his letter, probably even made uh, use of an editor. 
There is no reason to think that the style and vocabulary were not part of a process. It's actually kind of ridiculous to think that he would just quickly scribble out a letter that was to be such an authoritative document and pass it all around to all the Jewish Christians and just kind of send out the first draft without even looking it over again. I don't want to belabor this point, though, since I, even though there's lots of information to, to, to talk to you guys about this. But I don't think I have to convince you any farther of other reasons why this letter was written by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, why it couldn't have been written by someone trying to borrow James's credibility long after he was dead. But if they did, they would have added to it. If they were wanting to borrow the credibility, if they were wanting to steal credibility from James or borrow his credibility centuries later, you're not going to want to leave doubt about whose credibility you're trying to steal. So they would say something like, James, the brother of Jesus, or James, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. They wouldn't just go, James, and then go on. Anyway, back to outline. Sub, sub point B, moving down to sub point B. Sub point B, his biography. His biography. So now that we're clear about which James wrote the book, let's learn a little bit about who he was to understand his life a little bit better so that we can have a fuller context for this letter to get the most out of what we read in it. James was the physical younger brother of Jesus. We call him half-brother, not because he was the son of Joseph with a different mother from a previous marriage. This is what many in the Roman Catholic tradition believe uh, for, for no good biblical reason other than they just want to maintain the perpetual virginity of Mary so she can continue to hold the unbiblical, idolatrous office of co-mediatrix. It's the only reason that exists, not because anything you read in the Bible. There's no biblical evidence for this. The biblical evidence leads us to the conclusion that Jesus' siblings are his younger siblings, full children of Joseph and Mary. James was the half-brother of Jesus because Joseph was not the physical father of the virgin-born Jesus. So we see James listed and mentioned in places in the Gospel. We see him listed among Jesus' other brothers and sisters when we read about the astonishment of the people that Christ is teaching in his hometown in Matthew 13, 53-55. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In this list, and in the parallel passage in Mark 6, we see James listed first, which probably indicates that he is the oldest of the naturally born children of Joseph and Mary. So, so start to get this in your mind. He grew up, James grew up, with the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, as his older brother. And jokes are made about what that might have looked like that pretty regularly. But there's so many jokes about it that they almost negate the point. But I think it makes sense that Jesus' brothers and sisters would grow up not believing in him and even despising him. You know, if you have children, as sinful children, you were a child at least, as a sinful child, imagine you would watch as your older brother never ever got disciplined, that he was always right, that your parents were favoring him and they were rightly favoring him. Just, just imagine every single time you ever got in an argument with your older brother, you, you had no chance of ever hearing anything even remotely close to, you know, James, you might have a point there. That's never going to happen. That's going to be frustrating. It's actually going to be frustrating. Of course, the way that a sinful kid's heart is wired, they're going to grow up bitter against that brother. I mean, you know this. You think about some of the strained family relationships that you might have seen among siblings or maybe experienced in your own family. Siblings who grew up thinking that their brother or sister got all the breaks, that they were more loved. You've seen stuff like that. 
Just think of some of those strained relationships of brothers from the Old Testament who were jealous of their own brothers who might have been more favored by their parents. And they weren't even perfect and sinless. So you think of Cain and Abel. You think of Jacob and Esau and the the strain in those relationships. You think of Joseph, his brothers despising him so much for being the favorite that they contemplate killing him, but just decide to go with the lesser option of selling him into slavery. And even even later on, some of the animosity that David's brothers felt toward him, that we we hear their mocking tone towards him uh, when he comes to the the battleground, they're despising him because he was the one who's anointed as king over them. Turn, Turn over in your Bible to John 7. Turn back a little bit, go to John 7. When you really think about it, we should not be surprised that we would see Jesus' brothers, like we do in this passage, mocking him, similar to how Joseph's brothers and David's brothers did. Look in John 7, verses 1 through 5. We read, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so, if it weren't for the next verse, we could think, ah, maybe they're being nice. But in the next verse, he says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So here we see that Jesus' brothers knew that Jesus was claiming to be something special. And they'd grown up thinking that. And they mock him. They, they mocked him for his works. In fact, this type of mocking that they're doing to him, the, the mocking, the scoffing, it's similar to what we see the soldiers and rulers doing at, to Jesus at his crucifixion. Remember, they, they're mocking him for his supposed supernatural abilities. The soldier's telling him to prophesy who's hitting you, who's striking you. And the rulers who stood around at the foot of the cross and scoffed at him by saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. That's the same type of mocking that his brothers are doing here. You definitely see the the hatred for Jesus in those people around the cross and at the time of the crucifixion. And these words of his brothers sound shockingly similar. In fact, based on Jesus' next words to his brothers in John 7, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the evidence points to Jesus' brothers hating him also. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Jesus said to them, this is his response, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. And then we see that he stays in Galilee while his brothers leave and go up without him. And it certainly seems that his brothers are part of that world that hates him. And for more evidence, flip over a few more pages to John 19. Look at John 19. At the time, at the time when he is in more agony than we could ever experience, while Jesus is hanging on the cross... He is about to die. Moments left in his, in his life. And in John 19, we read, after the soldiers who crucified him took up his garments and cast lots for his tunic, we read, look at verses 25 through 27. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene, that's who was there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So during this most painful part of the life of Jesus Christ, as he is moments from death, he looks down from the cross, and of his immediate family that is there with him in this moment, he sees only his mother, 
of his immediate family. He has four brothers. He has multiple sisters. None of them are there. When I was doing ministry in Kentucky, I I remember on several occasions meeting family members for the first time as people were on their deathbed or, or at their funerals. And the reason I'd meet them for the first time is because they were siblings that they never got along with. They had some sort of lifelong grudge against one another. But they would still show up at the deathbed. They would still show up at the funeral. But Jesus' brothers are nowhere in sight. Joseph has most likely been dead for all of Jesus' adult life. So therefore, as the oldest son, Jesus is responsible for his mom. That's what you see going on there in that conversation. Jesus is responsible for the care and well-being of his mom. So what should happen here is as he is dying, it would be for him to leave his mom in the care of the next oldest son, James. But as he looks down, he sees his mother and one of his disciples, John, at the foot of the cross, in the place where a loving, supportive brother should have been standing. And he discharges his familial duty to his disciple instead. So, from the Gospels then, we have this extremely unflattering picture of James and the rest of Jesus' brothers. I didn't even go to, we didn't even mention the verse from Mark 3 where we're told that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. But then, fast forward about 40 days from this picture that we've just witnessed in John 19. Go and you can flip over a couple pages to Acts 1 in your Bibles. Look at the next place where we see the brothers of Jesus. We see it in Acts 1. Right after Jesus has ascended back into heaven, we read this in verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. There they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So James goes from thinking that Jesus is out of his mind to hatefully mocking him, to not even being there at his death, to now being among the first 120 people in the first stages of his older brother's church. What happened? Well, that's probably pretty obvious, but let's listen to Paul's testimony from 1 Corinthians 15. In this early Christian creed, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So, the James mentioned here is this same James. And this seems to indicate that there was some sort of special resurrection appearance from the risen Christ to his younger brother in in what must have been the, the most awkward, I think I might have been wrong about you, meeting It's ever taken place. Not most awkward. It was the most joyful. So in a moment, in a moment, the trajectory of James's life changes. And he goes from being someone who is ashamed to call Jesus part of his family to someone who now calls him Lord. And in the span of a decade from that time becomes one of the most influential 
and important leaders among the people who have been redeemed and reconciled to God through the life and death of this man who was at one time nothing more than the big brother he despised. So that's a little of James's biography. That brings us to subpoint C, his legacy. The legacy of James. So it's important for our purposes to understand just how important a figure James was. And I won't spend quite as long on this one because we've already touched on it a bit when we looked at Acts 15, so keep that chunk of Scripture in your mind. But James is often overshadowed when we're talking about the leaders of the early church because we think of, who do we think of? Peter, Paul, John. Those are the guys we think of. In fact, even guys like Barnabas and Silas seem to be more prominent in the book of Acts. But that's, that's primarily because the book of Acts follows Peter at the beginning and then Paul at the end, and we only end up seeing James when their paths cross. But the truth is, is that when we look in the New Testament, it actually appears that James is the most influential leader in the early church. You can think back to the position that he obviously held in Acts 15 that we just read. But just, and I've got you flipping around a lot, just go to, go, go to Acts 12 real quick. Go to Acts 12, verse 17. You can just look to After Peter's miraculous escape from the prison that he was in, he tells the disciples gathered, look there in Acts 12, 17. They're gathered in the house of Mary. He says, tell these things to James... And the brothers. Tell these things to James and the brothers, indicating that James is prominent, indicating James's prominence. And of course, we know here that it is this James, the James who wrote this book, the half-brother of Jesus. It is this James who is the overseer of the Jerusalem church? Because earlier you can look in your Bibles, earlier on in Acts 12, James, the disciple of Jesus, dies there. And this takes place after that. So in addition to that, if you want to, you can go to Acts 21. You're already in Acts. Acts 21, we see Paul and his companions coming to Jerusalem. And in verses 17 and 18 in Acts 21, we read, When we had come to Jerusalem, so Luke is one of the companions there, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. Again, there we see that James is the only one who is actually named. And everyone else is just grouped together. It's James and everyone else. James is the one who's named. Everyone else is grouped together. And this might be a good place, because I don't know where else to put it, to point out uh, that, I mean, this will come up as we're, when we get to James 2 for sure. But another kind of one of the controversies, this is a good place to point out that the idea that James and Paul preached competing gospels and that either one of them saw the other as preaching a contrary gospel, that is, it's just false. You can see it here. In Acts 21, uh, it says that Paul and his companions were what? Were received gladly. And in the next verse, we read, after greeting them, he, that's Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through His ministry. And when they, that's James and the elders, heard it, they glorified God. We can clearly see that the two men, Paul and James, respected each other. And the meeting that we are reading about here was probably about a dozen years or so after James wrote his letter. We'll see as we work through, this, uh, through the book of James that Paul actually says things that are quite similar to the very things that James says that supposedly contradict Paul. This what, I thought this was funny. This led one commentator to say, Indeed, to argue that James directly attacks Paul is to argue that James is a consummate blunderer, for he fails to meet any of Paul's arguments at all, and instead produces a work with which Paul would have agreed. So there is no, and you can see it as you read it in the pages of Scripture, there's no contradiction between James and Paul. So more of James's legacy. Not only is he a contemporary of Paul and of Peter, but usually when he shows up and acts with them, they actually are recognizing his authority and even submit to him in some things. And it's for that reason that Scott McKnight sums up the legacy of James by saying, Forgotten in the rise of both Peter and Paul is the fact 
that James cast a shadow over them in Jerusalem's earliest messianic community. So it's for this reason that the giant of the early church, the leader in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus Christ, because this is who he is, that's why he can confidently write such an authoritative letter to Jewish Christians. It is his It's this legacy, it's this reputation that we also need to keep in mind as we look back down now, now you should go back to James, as we look back down at James 1.1. So have all of that in your mind, what we just talked about. And then we read this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything that James could say to commend himself to his readers to commend himself to you and me, all the accolades that he could have listed off, some things, some things that no one else could ever claim. And the best way that he sees fit to commend himself to them is with that phrase. And that word for servant is the word doulos, the word that's better rendered as slave. Instead of going with James, leader of the church in Jerusalem. Instead of going with James, the brother of Jesus Christ, he says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A slave is one whose will is totally in bondage to the will of another. Your existence now is totally bound up in how someone else now makes all of those decisions for you. And there's some, actually, there's some extremely significant theology right there with the understanding that, that, that we know that no one can serve two masters. That means that James understands, he understands that the big brother that he used to despise is God. You can then see the character of James just shining through in this very first verse. He understands every accolade that he has, every accolade that he could claim, he understands it as nothing more than a direct result of his Lord Jesus Christ saving him and just giving it to him as an unearned, undeserved stewardship. James has no desire to locate his identity in his accomplishments. And actually, the reminder that he is the brother of the Lord, it's probably tough for him. Be reminded about how he spent the beginning of his life under the same roof as the long-awaited Messiah, and he despised him. All James cares about is his new identity. Sinner saved by grace. Since being saved, he has recognized himself as a slave of God. And it is only in his obedience to God that it has led him to his leadership position that he's in now. It's the only reason he has it, because he's been obedient to God. And it's not like James is just in this abdicating his authority and saying, don't don't read that. He's not saying, well, I'm just a lowly slave. So ultimately what I say to you doesn't hold any way. You can take it or leave it. Slave. Now, on on the contrary, he is saying that it is the very fact that I am a slave of the Lord that my words have any authority at all. When I speak and act according to His will through the position that He has placed me in, then you need to see it as the words of one who is only able to speak what God would have me say. In contrast, if he were speaking to them based on the authority of a title that he has ascended to, or an earthly relationship that he had no control over, it is then that you could take or leave any of his words. But when he speaks as the Lord's slave, and understanding that being the Lord's slave has led him to where he is, then you had better listen. So just as as one point of application for us in an and I know in an introductory sermon that's filled with information, just let's look at the example of James. Think about his example. Brothers and sisters in this culture that is obsessed over individual identity, 
that's obsessed with protecting and nurturing our identity, demanding to be respected. Like that's a right, as if we've as if we've done something to earn it. If James can be in such a position of prominence that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul don't merely consider him a contemporary, but actually follow his instructions. And this man can still consider his identity the most important qualifying thing about himself. If he's going to be known for anything, it's this. Slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is James, where could we ever get off in demanding or desiring recognition or to be known as anything other than a slave? One quick second and final point. James identifies the recipients as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Second point, the recipients, right? The recipients. And so James identifies the recipients as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is intended to be, from you can tell from this, a cyclical letter, meaning that James expects it to be passed around among all the Jewish Christians. Not, not one specific location like we see Ephesians going to Ephesus, Philippians going to Philippi. Not like that. And this is why you don't see, as you read James, as much of the personal references and greetings to specific people uh, like we saw when we were looking at Philippians. But this statement about the recipients to the 12 tribes in the dispersion is a clear reference to Jewish Christians. Some critical scholars have tried to say that this is only that this is actually only a Jewish letter and not a Christian letter because there's so much of an appeal to the law because he uses this title and there's so little specific Christian theology. But again, it's just people who want to punch holes in the Bible because almost every scholar, even those scholars, see numerous allusions to the teaching of Christ in the letter. They're not word-for-word quotes because the Gospels are not written yet and actually at this time reminding people of concepts that were taught through illusion, was the expected way that Jesus' teaching would be taught. In addition to that, no Jew, this can't be a letter for uh, Jews that aren't Jewish Christians, because no Jew who hadn't embraced Jesus as Messiah is even going to keep reading after the first line. They would immediately know, this isn't for me. A servant of God, oh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, this isn't for me. Now, this week I was looking up a church that I had heard about, and I wanted to see what kind of church it was, if they believed the same thing that we do. And immediately on the homepage was a picture of a group of people wearing uh, rainbow shirts and waving rainbow flags under the caption that said, Open and Affirming. And I didn't go, well, let's look at the doctrinal statement. Let's see, let's see where they are. No, I didn't need to go any further than that. And the same thing would be true for any Jew that had rejected Christ as Messiah and was continuing to live out a Messiahless Judaism right after they read that first line. They'd be like, nope, that guy's not the Messiah. I want to follow his slave. So the reference of the 12 tribes of the dispersion is clearly, it is clearly referring to Jews, but it's referring to Jewish Christians. Those are the only people that could fit in this, just this first verse. And that makes total sense because this is most likely written, again, several years before Acts 15 even happened. And the church is still made up of primarily Jewish Christians. In fact, the, the word, if you look at two, uh, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that, that word translated as assembly, it's not the same word that we're used to seeing that represents the church, the word ecclesia, ecclesia. It's not that word. It's actually the word synagogues, uh, the, the word for synagogue, because that's still where the Christians are meeting. Early Christianity was really just understood to be the orthodox continuation of Judaism. They didn't see themselves as Christian Jews breaking. Now we're breaking off from the traditional Jews. They saw themselves as Jews who recognized their Messiah. And then the ones who didn't were the ones who were breaking off and now worshiping a different God. As if there is another God in whom Jesus is not the Messiah of. And I also have to mention that there is just, there is just no way that James is using this term to symbolically represent Jewish and Gentile Christians unified in the church. 
That, that is, it's present, you hear it some places, but that's just horrible hermeneutics done many times by some actually good scholars who are just using a title that is clearly meant to identify Israel as God's chosen people. The biblical author James still understands Israel to mean something. He does not see all of God's promises to the nation of Israel being spiritually fulfilled because he still understands that the recipients of this letter to be the 12 tribes of the dispersion, the diaspora. That's a reference to the Jewish understanding, uh, to the Jewish understanding that God has currently, right now, or at this time, scattered His people among the nations, but He has promised that He will bring them back into their land. This is something that they eagerly awaited. It is a term, 12 tribes of the dispersion, that term diaspora, it is a term that is loaded with eschatological significance for a people that He knows is going through extreme trials, going through severe trials. So He wants that in there. We see that in, in Isaiah, just one passage, Isaiah 11, 11, and 12. We read this. This is what they're expecting. This is what they're expecting of the Messiah one day. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather His dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is a, is a frequent topic among the prophets, the fact that God is going to do this one day. You see it in other passages, and I took all of these ones out, so you just have to look them up yourself. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 8 through 14, Ezekiel 37, 15 through 22, Zechariah 10, 6 through 12. This promise that they're going to be returning to the land, that it was a certain promise that they were still awaiting, and they still continue to wait for today. Again, that term that James uses here, it doesn't, doesn't see the promises that God will bring, back, will bring Israel back to the land that they were being scattered from is somehow now having been spiritually fulfilled somehow now that Christ has come. And then they're not awaiting some sort of spiritual fulfillment. They still await fulfillment of this promise that God made to them. They expect God to be faithful to His promise. Just using the term is a reminder that the people whom God scattered out of the promised land will one day return. It's a reminder of that truth right in there. And, and the reminder is in the first phrase also, because we need to remember as, as we read Jesus Christ, that Christ is a title. Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So they're reminded just in this opening little greeting, introduction, that the one who will bring about the returning of the Jewish people to their land is the Messiah that we have already now seen. We know who He is now. The Messiah has come. The fact that now they can see God beginning to fulfill these promises to them is of great encouragement to see the rest of the promises fulfilled. He has come once and, and just about a, actually just about a decade before this letter is written, his followers are told by two angels as they watch their Messiah ascend into the clouds, he's coming back down that same way. And on that day, we see the rest of these promises fulfilled. But for now, and until that day, the designation of the 12 tribes of the diaspora await the final fulfillment of the promises of God to bring them back into their land, to be ruled righteously by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a fulfillment that we know will take place in the millennial kingdom. So with that reminder of who he is, of who James is, and who these recipients are, we read that final simple word, greetings. And it's the Greek word kairain from, from kairo. Kairo meaning rejoice, be glad, be delighted. That's interesting. Like when you think of it, if you, if you know what is all coming up in James, it's interesting because you would use this word when you're introducing good news. So just the fact that, that we see an authoritative book coming, and when then we hear the word 
for rejoice, be glad, be delighted. That, just that should rebuke our double-minded thinking a bit. Because like we said earlier, they're about to receive, again, the epistle with the highest percentage of commands in the New Testament. Imperative after imperative of how they need to change the way they are living. Stop doing this. Do this. Rejoice, be glad, be delighted. So, so, so if that's the case, that they're, they're getting all these commands, why would James expect them to rejoice, be, be glad, or be delighted? That's, that isn't how we naturally think. Again, being uh, Travis has mentioned this a few times recently, being told what to do and how to live is an infringement on my freedom. That's how I naturally take that. It's a negative thing that we sometimes have to, have to line up under someone else's authority because we're forced to. So at best, I'll do it, but I won't like it. But that's not how Christians are supposed to think. That's not how we think. Christians understand the law of God or the commands of Christ not as a burden, but as a delight. Because a real Christian joyfully finds their identity, as James did, as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know and joyfully anticipate the return of our owner and master. We anticipate his return to bring about the consummation of all things, to finally fulfill every one of his promises, and to bring us into his presence fully and completely free from every vestige of sin that still clings to us. And so even now we love his law and we love his commandments because while we wait for that day, we war with every part of us that, that, that still clings to the world, that still seeks sin, and still wants those things. And we know that the cure to that double-minded condition that we're in is joyful and eager obedience to the good and wise commands that we see in God's Word. So... As we come into the study of this book together, let's have that mindset also. Rejoice in the commands that God has graciously given us to prevent the double-minded condition that we hate. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful uh, for your word and for what you teach us through your word. We're thankful for the book of James. We're thankful for everything that you provide us for to find out context, to study, to think through so we can get the most out of your word because that is the logical duty for the Christian who believes this book to be the very word of God. Father, I pray that uh, we would go out from here today joyfully living in and even, even proclaiming our identity as slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would, as we come into this study of James, and every time we read the Bible, that we would joyfully submit to and look for commands in Scripture to submit to, that we would truly hate that double-minded condition that we so often find ourselves in, and that we would gladly submit ourselves to the words of our owner and master, God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.